Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Angela Rashidi, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, joins us to discuss whether a reformed and refundable child tax credit can reduce poverty. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber reports on a new study investigating an impressively cost-effective high-dosage tutoring intervention. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. To really have fun, you could either the adult or the kid has to be working. (laughs) What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Angela Rashidi. Angela, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks, Michael. It's great to be with you. Yeah, Angela is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she studies all sorts of things related to reducing poverty. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, and I hope you're enjoying the snowy Washington day. I am, Mike. I'm uh, both my kids are home from school. So, uh, you know, taking a nice little break here to podcast. Okay, there you go. That's oh, good. That's a nice excuse. We'll see if they uh, barge in. We were just reminiscing today about the the famous, uh, you know, newscast when the the kid busted in on on screen and then the mom crawled on, you know, across the screen and tried to drag him out. Anyway, those were the days back when this was all new uh, to all of us working from our homes. All right, we'll see what happens. Yes, my kids are home as well out there causing trouble in the streets of Bethesda as as far as I know. Well, Angela, super excited to have you here. You know, when when we want to talk about the broader world of anti-poverty, I often turn to Angela, who's writing, I really love on all of these things. Let's talk about some of the new anti-poverty discussions happening around the federal child tax credit. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Right now, Angela, the connection to Ed Reform is is pretty simple. I think a lot of us here in Ed Reform land think, hey, anything that reduces childhood poverty is a good thing. It's good on its own because we care about kids. It's also good because those kids are going to then likely do better in school. It's going to raise achievement. It's going to narrow achievement gaps if fewer kids are coming to school in poverty. Uh, You've been writing some things, though, skeptical. That, uh, you know, if if Congress passes a law and tells the Treasury Department just to send out a bunch of checks, yes, mathematically, that means we're reducing the childhood poverty rate. But what? It almost feels like cheating, right? It's it's uh, it's not uh, getting the kind of real change that we actually need. But but let me not put words in your mouth to give us give us this explanation of why we shouldn't necessarily be cheering that maybe Congress is going to expand the child tax credit again. Well, right. I mean, you, you've kind of, you know, summarized the issue well. I mean, I think it's it should be obvious to everyone that if the government sends money to low-income households, that will reduce uh, the poverty rate in the short term. Um, that should not be a surprise anyway. Like anyone, like you said, that's kind of just a mathematical equation. Um, I think some of the concerns I've raised about using the child tax credit um, as the mechanism to send more money to low-income households is really only in the sense, the concerns are in the sense um, when that goes to non-working households. And the reason is, is because yes, in the short term, that might bring them slightly above uh, really what's an arbitrary poverty line, but it really ignores kind of the long-term challenges. 
challenges that these households are facing. And if you use a policy like that, that actually discourages employment in the long run, that could make those households uh, worse off because they're more dependent on government. And it decreases their chances for upward mobility without employment in the household. Um, so I'm I'm all in favor of policies that reduce poverty, for especially for children. I think we all agree that, um, you know, poverty has, you know, very negative consequences on children. But I think we have to be very careful about the policies we put in place to achieve that goal. And, you know, again, short term sending money to households so that the, you know, short in the short term, they're just above a poverty line, I don't think is the right answer. I think we can be more creative and more, you know, thoughtful about the solutions. All right, let, let me play devil's advocate here. And I, I suspect David will play this e- even better than I do. But, you know, it seems like we see studies all the time uh, from the United States and around the world that say, well, if even just writing these checks or giving these cash benefits to poor families, it, it does have benefits for kids, you know, that they end up, again, in our context, learning more or there's other outcomes you can look at as well. So, you know, it's a trade-off, right? I mean, maybe that's not uh, getting, it's, it's not as good as, say, a program that gets the, the parent back into the workforce in a steady way, but it still has an upside. I mean, what, what's wrong with that? You know, why, why not say, hey, let's get, let's get the kids out of poverty, and then we can try to maybe work on some of these tougher issues. Yeah, I mean, I guess we could spend some time debating that literature, because, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of I don't know which literature you're you're referring to. I mean, if you look at the earned income tax credit, certainly a lot of benefits for kids. Um, you know, there's a large body of evidence suggesting positive aspects to the earned income tax credit. But guess what? That's tied to work. <laughs> so it's hard to disentangle the effects from the income um, versus the employment. And researchers certainly have done that. And I've had debates with researchers about what's more important, the employment or the income. Um, but I think that there, there is a debate about that. And on the flip side of that, uh, we do have evidence about writing blank checks to low-income families. Um, it's called AFDC. It predated welfare reform. Um, and I don't think anybody would argue that there were positive outcomes uh, related to that program for parents or children. Um, so I think that, you know, it's a, it's it's not an easy answer. There's a much longer debate about that literature that I think, um, you know, people aren't necessarily interested in engaging in in a in a, in a real way. Uh, it's much easier to say, let's just send people money because we know money helps families. I would argue, yes, it does in the short term, um, but let's think more more holistically about uh, the long term for these families. And, and the reform, as far as I understand it, and this is similar to what happened for a year under the pandemic, is is what? Allowing the ch- child tax credit to go to families who don't earn income, right? Make it fully refundable. Uh, I'm not sure if it would also, maybe if they're talking about making it more generous as well as happened during the pandemic. Um, I mean, what would you, you, you would want to see some kind of work requirement tied to it? Is that that's your major... Uh, suggestion. Yes. I mean, currently the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit both require earnings in the tax year to qualify for that benefit. Um, during the pandemic um, for the child tax credit, uh, that earnings requirement was eliminated. Uh, so it did go to non-working families. Uh, in the proposal uh, that that seems to be part of a compromise bill, bipartisan bill right now, um, they're not completely eliminating that earnings requirement. They're just allowing families to 
use a, a past year's income. And, you know, that may seem on the surface like, oh, well, that's not such a big deal. Um, these are still households that have some work in it. Um, and maybe that's true. I just think it's this overarching kind of narrative and, and, and goal out there to just remove the focus in our safety net programs, remove that focus from employment. And that's what I'm concerned about. And that's what I think is really misdirected. Right. It feels like going back to pre-welfare reform. Right. It feels like one, maybe even small step, but a step towards that direction, even if it's not fully that. Um, it just, I think we should be working on the other side of things. How do we strengthen work incentives in our programs, not try to weaken them? David, what do you think? Well, I'm I'm way out of my, uh, I'm way out of my bailiwick, to be honest, Mike. I don't disagree as much as you might think. And in fact, I'm not sure I disagree at all. I guess I'm just curious I mean, I personally, as kind of like a new parent, right, I I feel much more strongly about not disincentivizing work, let's say, between the ages of five and 15 than I do in the first few years. I my just it's my personal experience with it. My understanding of the brain science for kids, you know, just makes me feel like, you know, zero to 18 months, pick your date, right, is just a very vulnerable time for kids. And I guess I'm just curious to know if if there's a version of the policy, if you, if you see any exceptions for those year or years, or if there's a way that we can negotiate those years to just to make sure that kids are, you know, protected, right, without disconnecting families over the long run. Is there some way to have our cake and eat it too there? Uh, I, I, I'm putting the ball in your court to solve the the policy dilemma because I, I don't know that I have anything close to the expertise to do so. Yeah, no, and David, you you raise a really good point because the brain science is so strong. And I would also, you know, argue in favor of giving kids, especially age zero to five, as many resources as possible. I think for me, though, again, it's that employment aspect. And I mean, we do have evidence even from the AFDC experiments in the TANF that low-income kids, when their parent, when they're mostly single mothers went to work, they actually did better. Um, and, and part of the reason was because they did go into childcare and they they received um, you know, more development, uh, developmentally appropriate uh, care and they had income in their household. So if you're if we're arguing for a policy that could completely replace earnings uh, and you know really bring a family out of poverty, I might say, well, okay, but that's not what we're talking about. And part of the reason we're not talking about that is because that's financially unsustainable. Um, what we're talking about is $2,000 per child. Um, and if you have a non-working single mother who's getting $2,000 per child um, with no earnings in the household, that concerns me um, because that that that's not bringing them out of poverty. Um, and that's also not setting up for long-term success. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad you raised it because I think it does highlight that this, even this policy on its own is not going to solve our problems related to child poverty. But your, the argument you made, I would actually agree with that we should be focusing on child development in those early years and trying to maximize resources in the household as well as you know child interaction with their parents um, and all those things we know from the child development literature are, are crucial. All right. Well, we will need to leave it there. Thank you so much, Angela Rashidi, again, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.
All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So we just talked about the child tax credit, anti-poverty. I, I thought this was going to you know, be an issue where David and I would have a chance to disagree. And yet, yet again, you know, we sound all mealy mouth like we, we are on the same page here. Oh, man. Like who who's coming over to each other's side? That's what I want to know. Or, or, or are there any sides anymore between you two? It's, it's a good question. Mike has accepted the inevitability of a social safety net, and I have accepted the desirability of work incentives. And there's, I mean, we could quibble at the margins, but, you know. Yes. All right. Fair enough. Um, you know, what What I do think, though, should I write a piece, Amber, that says, OK, you know, conservatives really think there should be work requirements tied to these social safety net programs, including the child tax credit. So I'm going to propose that there really should be a work requirement for adults tied to education savings accounts. Or, or maybe to really have fun, you could either the adult or the kid has to be oh working. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's going to go over. Oh, man. And here I was, I was thought we could talk about the weather, you know? Oh, come on. It is. It's snowing. All right. We talked about that already. All right, all right Amber, you promised us that we, we were warming up slowly here into the new year, but that you're going to, are we going to finally bring some hardcore? Hey, I'm bringing a randomized control study to you, Mike. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> and this one is out by Susanna Loeb. Uh, wow. She puts out a ton of research every year uh, and her co-authors are examining the short-term effects of a relatively affordable and scalable tutoring model for young readers. So this is going to hit all of our buttons in terms of reading, literacy, and policies and all that good stuff. We're still trying to figure out how high-impact tutoring works, like how do we do it right if we think it works. Uh, and this study contributes to that understanding, in my opinion. Uh, just a quick note, though, these are results from evaluation of year one. So this is the early, it's right out of the gate, but they've got a multi-year um, grant where they're going to be looking at it for another few years. The subsequent studies are going to track kids uh, further along in elementary school. But right now we just have year one uh, in kindergarten. Study takes place in Broward County schools during the 21-22 school year, during which the district partnered with the Chapter One program. And I'm going to briefly describe it because it's one of these programs that's getting quite a bit of attention now that this um, study's seen the light of day. So you've got part-time tutors. Most of them have never taught, but they've got a bachelor's degree. They're embedded into kindergarten classrooms to provide short burst of instruction, five to 10 minutes max, uh, to individual students at the back of the classroom each week over the course of the school year. The sessions focus on a progression of skills in phonics development, where children learn to segment and blend short and vowel long sounds. Uh, they learn sight words, then they learn to fluently um, code decodable text, and then text with unfamiliar words and patterns. Uh, the tutors use a digital evidence-based curriculum to conduct each of these bursts that facilitate the assessment and tracking of each child's performance over time. So after they get this little burst of tutoring, the students then have to do 15 minutes of independent practice on the skills that they just learned in their burst. And they are provided with uh, Kindle Fire tablets, apparently, from this Chapter 1 program. After one child leaves, she brings the next student to the tutor, which helps avoid disruptions. 
The technology also decides how many times a week a child gets a, a tutoring burst, once a week uh, or up to every day. And how many minutes, whether it needs to be three, five, 10, it needs to be based on the progress they're making. They've got 13 schools, 49 grade K classrooms participating in the experiment. They've got uh, over 800 kids. An average of 84% of them were on free and reduced lunch. The eligible kids had to score at the lowest level on the district's reading kindergartner screener and have parental consent. Within each of the 49 grade K classrooms, uh, kids were randomly assigned to the treatment group that received chapter one tutoring or the control group, which was business as usual. And we don't know nothing about business as usual. We just know it wasn't chapter one. Uh, they report on three outcomes. The first one was developed by chapter one, and it's the goal of the first year of the program, which is they got to meet reading grade level four out of six on their measure. And then they say basically that uh, they found that kids were over two times more likely to reach that goal, 70% compared to 32%. By the end of the year, again, compared to those kids who got business as usual, that's 38 percentage points more likely, which is kind of a, a lot. Uh, and then they looked at a couple non-program developed measures because obviously, you know, those those other program developed measures could be biased or leading. So then they did a like a Dibbles-like assessment where students' oral reading fluency was measured. And they found that on average, the tutored kids scored 0.23 standard deviation higher. Then they looked at the district reading level assessment and they found that the treatment score was a little bit 0.11 standard deviation higher. Then they did interviews and they were trying to get a sense from the teachers like, okay, this seems pretty promising. It's um, it's looking good. And they basically said that they thought that the one-on-one, -on -one, even though it was really, really short, was um, part of the key to the success. They liked that there was this consistent presence of tutors and the kids really seemed to enjoy that extra one-on-one -on -one attention. And that's at least why they think it succeeded. Let's get real quickly on costs and I'm going to wrap up. $375 a student includes the cost of the tutor. We're only told they receive above, substantially above minimum wage. Uh, includes background checks, Kindle fires for the kid, a Chromebook for the tutor, training for the tutor. And then they compare other tutoring programs and they say they're running about 2,000 a child or more. So this one's more affordable. One tutor can serve multiple classrooms. Uh, and then the end was saying, you know, Broward used their ESSER funds to cover the cost of this thing. And now it's not clear whether they're going to pay for it again. But it seemed to me like I like the fact that it gave us a, a, a good description of what they were doing. And it seems really, really promising. OK, now very promising. I, and such short, these short, short bursts are kind of fascinating. I mean, three minutes. That sounds uh, like five like, is usually the minimum, but all right, five, but you have five minutes, but Hey, if, if, if the kid's just stuck as they're learning some of these basic skills, I, I mean, maybe that, I guess that's all it takes. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I don't know, we tend to think of class time as class time well used. Right. But I think, you know, as, as we've learned or as anybody who's taught knows most class time isn't used. So if it's five minutes, that's actually on task, right? I mean, I would submit that your average kid is on task for maybe double that in in a 60 minute period. So I, I think it's longer than it sounds if the kid is truly engaged. It, it, is it fair to say, I mean, you guys think this, this seems unusually structured for tutors? I agree, very, very structured, yes. 
And by the way, they provide the tutors that are trained according to their program, right? So what we're seeing in other places is that they they can't find qualified tutors, but here the tutor come with, comes with the package. I mean, that was just huge. I mean, that's the value add, right? That That's, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and, and the structure, I assume, makes it feasible to train, you know, this and to scale it. Structured and focused, right? I mean, I think, you know, the opposite of that, right, is unstructured and unfocused, right? Which sort of describes what I think we've been doing nationally, right? And and I think, I don't know, I, I, I everybody else, I'm trying to reconcile, like, all the different things we're hearing about tutoring, right? And I don't know, in the absence of it, you know, really the ability, a universal lit review, I feel I'm falling back on common sense of what I think I'm hearing, right? Which is if you have a well-designed program that's highly focused and structured and, you know, targets a thing that we know how to do, that seems, I don't know, to be more effective than just tutoring. Yep. And, and we have to have those specifics, right? It's not just how effective is tutoring. I mean, that's... Uh... That's like saying how effective is school. I mean, it, 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 right. Hey, I, I'm also curious about this Esther part. You know, I got uh, some pushback over the last week because in an article I was writing about equity and school finance, I made an offhand comment saying that, you know, it seems like most of the Esther money has been wasted. And a lot of people pushed back saying, no, 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 we don't know that. You know, we don't. It, it, and it's true. We don't know. I don't know if we'll ever know is the problem, right? I mean, it's just not a lot of accountability or even reporting. Um, I hear stories like this from Broward. I say, yeah, okay, if if a bunch of people did this kind of focused tutoring, then that was money well spent. But are we ever going to know how much was this versus, you know, let's just give everybody in the district a $1,000 bonus? Right. No, I know, Mike. And I, I feel like we had such high hopes for this school level, you know, um, ESSER requirements, but uh, it's 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 dribbling out, right, in terms of how these monies were spent. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we know. But if somebody out there knows, let us know and we'll be happy to let you share it with our audience. All right. Good stuff, Amber. Appreciate that. That is all the time we've got for this week, though. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.